The climate has been changing since the beginning of time. That is a scientific fact. It's been a hot July. Some call it global warming, some call it summer. The large and prolonged El Nino means that when we get into the inter-monsoon period of next year, the temperatures that we've experienced in Southeast Asia will be shattered. Welcome to Jutes. Those first voices you heard were, in order, a US politician, a US TV pundit, and last of all, the voice of Professor Benjamin Horton, a climate scientist and head of the Singapore Earth Observatory. During his three-year tenure there, Ben has been paying particular attention to climate conditions around Southeast Asia, and very particular attention to rising sea levels and the threat they pose to Singapore. Singapore is the most at-risk developed nation on the planet. Singapore's the next Atlantis. In this conversation, we also talked about his plans for a new climate transformation hub in Singapore, and how he deals with those very first voices you heard, those of the climate denial movement. But I began the chat by asking whether he was surprised by the extreme rapidity of this year's temperature rises and what comes next. I don't think um, any climate scientist has really been surprised at the, the records that we have breached. Perhaps the fact that they're happening in 2023 instead of happening towards the end of this decade or into the next decade has caught people by surprise. But, you know... I'm not saying I'm a soothsayer, but, uh, you know, I wrote an article in the Straits Times in 2019 that said that because of climate change, when the next El Nino hits, Southeast Asia will break all records. And climate science is complicated, but in certain elements, it's so very, very basic. We have a knowledge of when in the year it is the warmest. And here in Southeast Asia, it's a time period between about April and June. Then we also know that within a decade, when is it the warmest? When El Nino happens. And we've seen that in 2016, 1998, 1982. And then we've also got climate change. So we know our global temperatures. So you just add them up and you just go, well, when's the warmest time of the year? April, May. When there's an El Nino, well, El Nino is happening now, and we've got climate change. And then, lo and behold, on May the 12th, we had the warmest record temperatures in Singapore in uh, 40 years. Could we go back next year to being where we were before and, and not too much trouble? Well, if we look through the history of 20th century temperature records, the warmest time periods in a decade are always when there's an El Nino, yeah. because El Nino... So these records might just be an El Nino. No, but they're on a baseline, and the baseline is ever-changing because of human-induced climate change. So an event, you know, uh, uh, all the warmest years, 17 of the warmest 18 years have occurred since the year 2000. So now we have this issue that the warmest years ever are when you get an El Nino plus human-induced climate change. But when you actually have a La Nina, which suppresses temperatures, they're already ranked in the top 10 that we've ever recorded. So even the cool periods are higher than... Yeah, they've expecting. suppressed the extremes. And what we're experiencing now is the extremes. And, and, and this summer, this summer we've seen, you know, June came out as the warmest month, um, and was it July the 7th was the warmest day, but then only two days later it was broken again. The warmest three months, September now is off the charts. We've got ocean temperatures that 
around Florida are 12 degrees C centigrade warmer. We've got temperatures in Antarctica that are staggering at times 10 to 20 degrees centigrade warmer than the normal. I mean, we've got all these extremes, and it's when you couple together natural variability when they coincide with the baseline and the baseline is changed into with human-induced climate change, then you break records. And we will break records again and again. And the worry of a climate scientist is that El Nino has only just begun. How long an El Nino lasts? We don't know. How intense an El Nino is? We don't know. They have some evidence, don't we? I mean, the El Nino is a recurring phenomenon. No, but so we know approximately how long they can last. They can last, if it's a minor El Nino, six months. If it's a major El Nino, 18 months. What the effect of human-induced climate change is on El Nino, we don't actually know. Is that going to make them longer? Because if we think about the other side of it, which is La Nina, which is the cool side of it, we had three successive La Ninas, one after each other. That's, That's never, unusual. Never happened before. Oh. Normally you go El Nino, normal, La Nina, normal, El Nino. But what happened with La Nina is we went La Nina, La Nina, La Nina, normal, El Nino. So does that mean we'll now get three successive El Ninos? Does it mean well, that you tell me. we don't know? There are many elements. As I said, climate is complex. We're now going into an El Nino. Does that mean we're now just going to get a minor one? Or conversely, this El Nino will become the biggest El Nino ever and take us into unbelievably uncharted territory. I really hope not. But the one well, thing what's, that... What's, what's, what's your best guess? I mean, here we, we, uh, we're, we're three okay. months into this one. Well, we're best... beginning to see the haze coming in from Indonesia already. The temperatures are already as high as they can be. Well, the problem we have is that the warming in the Pacific is happening at rates that we've never seen before. So as a scientist, well... As anybody who has an understanding, if it's unprecedented, then that would potentially indicate that we're going to get a really large and prolonged El Nino, which is the worst thing that could happen. Because a large and prolonged El Nino means that when we get into the inter-monsoon period of next year in Southeast Asia between April and June, we will still have an El Nino. And so you'll have the warmest times of the year because it's the monsoon periods and a really warm El Nino and climate change. And then you would see that the temperatures that we've experienced in Southeast Asia, you know, in May where we broke all records, will be shattered. I mean, they'll be broken by one or two degrees. It will be really, really hot here. We need to make sure... So, sorry, are you, so are, you, are you saying that come this time next year, Southeast Asia is going to be in a position where we are having to keep our kids and elderly indoors? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge possibility. Well, how many people died from the last El Nino? What was the increase in mortality? Don't know. In Singapore? I don't know. In Southeast Asia? 100,000 people. People in- just dying from heat? Basically, heat and heat-related problems. And that was a minor El Nino. So if we think about this time next year, you've got another eight years of climate change, another eight years of urbanisation warming up Singapore, and um, it could be an even greater El Nino. So are we more resilient than we were in 2015 and 16? But the climate threat to Southeast Asia is much greater than increased summer heat locally. What's happening in the Earth's polar regions is also a concern. The Norwegian archipelago is warming quicker than any other place on Earth. And our window of time to save that summer ice 
has now closed. The recent polar melts have fueled further talk of a polar tipping point, a catastrophic collapse of the ice sheets, bringing a potential nightmare scenario for low-lying islands like Singapore. It's an area that Ben Horton has studied in detail. The scientific community came together to have a look at tipping points in ocean circulation, tipping points in the biosphere, and I was involved in trying to look at the tipping points to do with sea level rise. We identified that if temperatures got above 1.5 degrees C, above the pre-industrial, for a sustained period of time, we're meaning 10, 20 years, then the ice sheets would collapse. And that is worrying for every single person on the planet because our ice sheets at the poles, Greenland and Antarctica, combined have around 70 metres of sea level rise within it. The last time in the Earth's history where we had carbon dioxide values that are analogous to what we're predicting for the next 30 years was around uh, 2.8 million years ago. 2.8 million years ago, and you can find fossilised coral reefs. And those fossil coral reefs are at an elevation of 10 to 20 metres above today. So that's where sea level will go. Singapore, as an example, a third of this island is only one metre above the highest tide. So what happens to Singapore? Singapore's the next Atlantis. It goes. And then, despite the efforts of the government to you can't, guard against, well, you, so Singapore can adapt. Everywhere can adapt to gradual sea level rise. You keep your emissions down. You keep us below that 1.5 degree C threshold. Singapore can adapt, but if you go beyond that 1.5 degree C threshold, the ice sheets collapse at such a rate. There isn't an engineering solution that can stop it. How close are we to that tipping point? Well, well, we've passed it now. We've passed the 1.5, but the scientific community knows that that level of temperature needs to be sustained for 10, 20, 30 years. That's why it's so important, so important that we really mitigate, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and draw that temperature back below 1.5. All right, so it it needs to be a very long sustained period of heat before we we see the real catastrophic ice I don't think 10 to 20 20 years of sustained heat is a long period. No. I'm going to be around, Mm. okay? I don't know about you, but I'm... Fingers (laughs) crossed. But, so it's within... It's this aspect of climate. It's not about future generations. It's about me, okay? It's about me being part of a community that doesn't try and persuade, that's the wrong word, just delivers the facts, delivers the urgency, and says what the consequences are. The consequences are that these ice sheets, these ice sheets don't care about me and you. These ice sheets just obey the laws of physics. And we know that if we go beyond this tipping point, the ice sheets just disintegrate. They haven't got a soul. They haven't got a conscience. They react to air temperatures and ocean temperatures and they disintegrate and they wipe Singapore and all other low-lying areas off the planet. Singapore is a little bit screwed because it's got nowhere to go. So in a lot of areas, you can just migrate inland. But Singapore's got nowhere to go, as many other nations. But Singapore, in my, my, my knowledge, Singapore is the most at-risk developed nation on the planet. There are many low-lying developing nations. So it's interesting that Singapore, despite its huge amount of wealth, will not be able to survive with a rising sea level from a collapsing ice sheet. Al Gore said only recently 
And I wonder if you agree with this. Let me read you what he said. He said, once we stop net additions to the overburden of greenhouse gases, once we reach so-called net zero, then temperatures will stop going up almost immediately. The lag time is as little as three to five years. Mm -hmm. You agree with that? That's correct. So if you meet net zero for the globe by about 2050, um, then the temperatures will will start to decrease. Um, what's worrying to the climate community is things are getting a little bit away from us. And so we're playing around with things that can destroy civilization. So is it appropriate to put off net zero to 2050? I think, I think, tasked with this new information coming from the climate community that we've already passed this 1.5 degree C threshold, those net zero need to be revisited. And I would hope that the concept of net zero needs to be revisited. Well, the timescale of the timescale. The timescale. So instead of having timescales that the governments have come out with of 2050, 2060, 2070, that these need to be thought of as 2035, 2040, 2045. And how do we achieve those? Um, what do you think about the very concept of net zero as a solution? Well, I think it has its dangers. Obviously, it's a it's where we have to be as a society is that we don't increase our amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere beyond the very levels that we have right now. But it does have its dangers that it does mean that, well, if we can balance our carbon budget, we can continue to emit. And that's part of the problem. We know as a community how to emit carbon. We're very, very good at it. Every time we turn on our lights, start our car, we're emitting carbon. We do not know how to conserve carbon. Our nature conserves carbon, but we seem to like to chop down every tree, destroy every coral, remove every mangrove. So we're not very good at that. Carbon capture and storage, we haven't been successful at that. So we're very, very good at emitting it, and we're very, very bad at storing it. But there is a long-running and persistent thread of contradiction from a minority section of the scientific community. They claim that carbon is not the problem. They believe the sun's variable magnetic field manifested in sunspots is what's driving the warming patterns. When sunspot activity is compared to temperature changes over the same period, a remarkable correlation appears. Now, it must be said, this is a minority view, and a lot of the contrary research is tied very closely to funding from fossil fuel interests and to input from politically aligned U.S. institutions like the Heartland Institute and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. But with the fossil fuel companies now devoting vast funds to marketing and PR activity, this narrative is not going away. And to some extent, at least, the interests of serious scientific debate do require paying at least some attention to the dissenting voices. Yeah, no, and I have to answer that. Otherwise, anybody listening to that will think, oh, he's dodging the question. But all I'm saying is that, you know, sunspot is just a correlation. It's not a causality. Its actual impact on the climate is minimal. There was a correlation that when we had what was called the Little Ice Age, where temperatures were slightly cooler than today, there were no sunspots. And then in the 20th century, they started to increase. The sunspot numbers started to decrease in 1980. What has happened to our observational temperatures? 
They just shrugged it off. They've gone on record-breaking, on record. Because the two dominant factors are the orbit of the Earth around the sun and the amount of carbon dioxide. Okay. Climate change, by its very name, the second word is change. The Earth has always changed. And that should not ever give you any complacency. That should worry you. We know why the Earth changes. So there have been five extinctions on planet Earth. We're now entering the sixth. Of those five extinctions previously, we all know about one of them, the meteor impact, 65 million years ago. We all know about that because we've seen it in films. Mm -hmm. But the other four, what was the driver? Each one of those was carbon dioxide variability. Okay, So the Earth naturally changes its carbon dioxide, and that's because of volcanic emissions or the alignment of continents on the Earth and how much tectonic activity is. We are now artificially producing large amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so we know right now our amounts of carbon dioxide values are around 420 parts per million by volume. The ice core records of Antarctica record annual variability in CO2. We've never seen anything like this. Whenever we've got to 280 parts per million by volume, the temperatures have increased to you know, one to two degrees C warmer than today. And sea levels, I always like to talk about sea levels because that's what I study, were three to seven metres warmer than today. So within the last 800,000 years, the Earth has never had CO2 measurements that high. So we can go back. So, we str- so obviously the scientific community is like... Okay, we're in uncharted territory, but there must have been a period in the geological past where we had those values because stored within the Earth are huge amounts of carbon dioxide. So you go back, you go back, and then there's this time period called the Pliocene. The Pliocene's around 2.8 million years ago, and at that time period, there was huge amounts of volcanic activity, and that produced carbon dioxide values that were around 450 parts per million by volume. When it reached that, we had temperatures that were three to five degrees C warmer than today. That's just what our climate models are saying. And sea levels were 10 to 20 metres higher than today. Going back to those ice sheets, they don't care. When you raise temperatures because of carbon dioxide, those ice sheets melt and sea levels go up and they drown all of our infrastructure. Another of the more common Uh, debates is about consensus. Now, the scientific community, we keep hearing 97% or or something close to that is agreed about climate change, its causes and its potential impact. And yet, again, back to the, the Heartland Institute, James Taylor, the president, says the Heartland Institute is very strong in proposing the idea that this consensus does not exist. How do you speak to that? Well, the underpinning of science that has been around for hundreds of years is called peer review. So as my career is based around peer review, you write an academic article um, proposing. So one of the things that we wrote was that um, the magnitude of sea level rise in the 20th century has not been seen for the previous 2000 years. A very provocative statement was actually uh, because then you're showing that you're living in unprecedented times. We wrote that article. What you do is you submit that article to an academic journal and it's reviewed anonymously. By other uh, people, ex- experts in that space. But and, and, again, then, and then your paper comes out, okay? And then you can say, and then that pa- that 
that that statement is then retested. Right. We use what's called a deductive. We go hypothesis testing. All the, so you know Ben Horton and his team state that sea levels are rising fast. Everyone's going to test that. And we have these sort of arguments like, oh, you do that because you make money. Okay. And I've always. And the, liked- the, the, the case of Patrick Brown, only very recently, who actually came out and said, I didn't write this peer review for this peer review journal because they said to me that we want you to have a particular angle on climate change. The, the, whole, the whole process of peer review itself is again coming under fire from all these that, think tanks. Um, again, I would like to know what the journal said about that you can be asked to write you can obviously massage messages quite easily so sometimes i'm asked to write an article it's called the review piece an editorial but true peer review you have to trust that process that's the process that you know identified all the groundbreaking discoveries but but does it worry you that increasingly we are seeing people paying attention to non-qualified voices well, people, there has been this. Uh, there are two elements of this. One, people will always go to news sites that reinforce their beliefs. You know, you can feel as part of a community. So if you're part of the climate deniers, what you don't want to do is go and look on social media and follow Mike Mann, because then you're just made to look an idiot. That's why I do a lot of trying to do public speaking, because anyone who is maybe a sceptic or or doesn't uh, understand climate, perhaps when they hear from me, they learn a bit, but also they look at me and they think, well, he's quite a trustful guy. Do you not think that if we'd actually discovered that sea level rise rates were faster than today, a thousand years ago than today, I would be a very rich man today? Oh, my God, do you think I would get unbelievable grants to be on some speaking tours if I'd shown that? Ever since the concept of the greenhouse effect was first proposed way back in the 1850s, and particularly over the past 50 years, scientists have principally been portrayed either as doom-mongering Cassandras at worst or canaries in the coal mine at best. But can they do more? Is there a more hands-on role for them to play? Science needs to improve and, and, and become more accurate and become more precise. It needs to engage with um, the business community on what do they actually need and how can they solve the problem themselves. So it's all about data, looking at supply chains, what are the low-hanging fruit. It's about working with social scientists on trying to provide this information to the community because anything that requires requires change in a community has to have their support. Um, It involves better understanding the impacts of climate change. So we don't particularly understand what are the true impacts on biodiversity, health, finance and how do they all interrelate there's a lot and 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 so that is and then we need to work globally i mean climate change will influence every person on the planet so it's one of those topics that even still there are talks that take place between china and the u.s on climate change. So we need to be part of the global solution. We need to learn from our mistakes. So so one of the things when I came into Singapore is that um, I was coming into an educated society where climate change was 
understood, was accepted within the school curriculum, was accepted within policymakers, but there was a lack of urgency and an understanding that Singapore, just like everywhere else, was not going to be resilient to these changes. So I spent a lot of time on that sort of communication angle. But what I really wanted to do, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to set up a climate centre. There are such centres the Stockholm Resilience Centre is perhaps one of the most famous, Potsdam, Colombia. There isn't one in Asia. There is nowhere for business communities, local authorities, teachers to go to to get the accurate climate information. And so I wanted to set up a climate transformation hub where we collected the best data. We looked at the impacts on health, finance, um, and biodiversity. We looked at those sort of pathways, found what are the most appropriate solutions outside renewable energy, which has its own sort of think tanks. But what are the best nature-based solutions? How do we keep that? How do we educate people? Um, and what are going to be the impacts on society? And that was my mission when I came out to Singapore. And what I'm very pleased to say is Two or three weeks ago, Grace Fu announced that the Earth Observatory of Singapore was being given funded by the government to start this centre. The centre starts... Oh, so this will be something beyond the Earth Observatory. Yeah, it starts December 1. What's it going to consist of? It's called the um, Climate Transformation Programme. It involves all universities here in Singapore, involves international partnerships with the best climate institutes globally. It will create a homegrown talent force of over 100 personnel in climate science, looking at what are the impacts in Southeast Asia of climate, what are the extremes, so what are the droughts, what are the wildfires, what are the landslides, heavy rainfall, what are the extremes in flooding from sea level rise, what are those impacts on biodiversity, on our mangroves, on our tropical rainforests, what are the impacts on finance, the business community, you know, dormitory workers, agricultural sector, what's the impact on health, on obesity, on heart disease, on heat stress, how do we monitor that, how do we employ the latest AI machine learning to understand these pathways? How do you bring in the social sciences, the arts, and then what are the solutions for Southeast Asia? Fantastic. But it, it was my vision to come here and to do this job. You know, when I was, I was back in the UK uh, a week or so ago, so I went back in the UK to um, find the partners for this climate transformation. So I went to see um, the Grantham Institute um, at Imperial, which is the UK's leading climate institute. So I talked to a lot of business leaders there, particularly the one I went to see Chanel's uh, uh, CEO because they're, they're, you know, their textiles are initially um, made in Asia. Went to see the Leverhulme Trust because they're doing a lot of these nature-based solutions. But the other thing, I went to see my mum and dad because mum and dad still live in Manchester. And my mum said, you know... Um, you can't leave Singapore. Because I was saying, like, I, I, you know, I want to come home and look after you guys. You know, you're getting on a bit. And my mum said, no, you're not coming back. And I said, why not? I said, well, you're making a difference. You know, what you do in Singapore is truly making a difference. Looking after you, going and getting a job in the UK and looking after your mum and dad won't make a difference. And they didn't want me. And I'm saying, why don't you want me to come home? So I've got to start this centre. I've got to get people going. And we've got to try and make the difference. Fantastic. Yeah. Let me just ask you one final question. Do you say the evidence that you see and everything that you have dedicated your working life to is very clear. Mm -hmm. Does it frustrate you that nobody else sees this? 
Um, I think that people do see it now. I mean, I, I could always understand the but as issue. You, as you said, every survey suggests that a vast majority of the global population hasn't got the first clue about what you're talking well, about. Well, it's connecting the dots, though, isn't it? OK, so when they see a wildfire, it's telling the people that, well, this wildfire was caused by in a prolonged period of drought, and that drought was caused by um, climate change. And if we became more resilient, then maybe we wouldn't have that drought, that we were aware that droughts were going to happen and you're going to create wildfires, so therefore you may change your forest management practices for now a different type of climate. And the same thing if people's crops fail. They don't realise that, well, that's because of human-induced climate change changing the rainfall patterns. But if we use the latest climate models, we then can educate the farmers on that, well, this is because of climate change and you should be planting at different time periods or water harvesting or um, using different types of crops. So it's all this element that when we had models, I could understand that the public were sceptical, but now they see it everywhere. And if you're educated you apply it to climate change. We're at a point within my working life, so I've got at least 15 or 20 years left in being a frontline academic. Within my working life, we'll make a decision on what society will be. And I really think it's a How black... Do you mean? Well, we'll we'll have either lowered our carbon dioxide emissions sufficiently enough for me to realise towards the end of my academic life that we're going to have a safe and sustainable society, all things being equal. Conversely, we could just continue to burn carbon. We don't protect our nature. We don't invest in carbon capture and storage. And I will know by the end of my life that society is doomed. And that's the final word, and a pretty sobering one at that. Almost all of us will know, within our lifetimes, whether or not the planet as we know it and our lifestyles as we know them can continue as they are right now. Just don't tell the kids yet. Thanks for listening. This has been the first episode of a series of upcoming podcasts under the banner of Jutes a brand that takes as its starting philosophy an old saying from the management guru Peter Drucker. The greatest danger in times of turbulence is not the turbulence, it's acting with yesterday's logic. Jutes is about looking beyond our current frame to find new ideas. I hope you'll join us. (laughs) 